Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Welcome in on a Thursday morning. That's Joe Ingles Day. Joe's coming up. He'll join us later in the show. Uh, we've also got uh, Craig Bowlerjack scheduled to join us today. He's got a lot of basketball coming up. Uh, we also have a basketball question of the day. As things start ramping up and everybody gets ready to head to Florida, assuming that plan holds together, uh, Donovan Mitchell, how good can he be? What is his ceiling? How much upside do you see for him? Um, I think many things about this. Where to jump in and where to start. Uh, Number one, he can get better in the regular season. I think there are two specific things when it comes to scoring there where he can still improve and he, he hasn't peaked yet. Um, one, I think he can get to the line more. I think there's a lot of scoring done in the line. It's not glamorous. It doesn't make the highlights, but it's really efficient. It's something all the best scorers do. <clears throat> it drives you nuts. It drives you nuts when it's not your guy, right? James Harden averages uh, almost 12 free throws a game this year. He also leads the league in scoring at 34.5 points a game. 34.4, but you get the point. And the free throws, actually 11.8. But for our purposes, we'll call them 12. And it is not an accident that he leads the league in scoring. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is second in free throw attempts at 10. And he is third in scoring at 29.6 per game. That is not an accident either. Now, Giannis shoots a low percentage. He's only 63% free throw shooter. Harden is at 86%. So when we start talking about has Donovan reached the ceiling, I don't think so. I think he can get the line more. I think you got to create the contact. I think you sometimes have to play for the fouls and adjust the way you play. And that will drive you nuts if you're on the other team. But if a guy does it on your team... That's a big old win, and you'll be excited about that. Uh, Mitchell keeps pumping his scoring average up. He's at 24.2 points per game right now, but he doesn't shoot a lot of free throws. He makes four a game. He shoots 4.6 per game. Now, he's much more hardened at the line than he is out to Kempo. Uh, Mitchell's improved his percentage to 85.9. That, that is very good. Would it surprise you to learn that Kawhi Leonard is better at 89% at the free throw line? Hey, you want to win, and Kawhi's got two titles, become a great free-throw shooter. Uh, Kawhi gets the line seven times a game. So, can Donovan Mitchell get to James Harden uh, 11.8? Baby steps, people. I mean, you would hope one day he would master that. But, hey, if you're at four and a half free-throws a game, how do you get to six or seven, right? That's one more trip per game. That's one situation a game where you got to think, I'm going to draw the foul here. I got a chance, and and I think it's a it's a win on multiple levels because not only do you get to shoot more free throws, and Donovan's at eighty six percent. That's a very good number. I think anytime you can get to eighty, uh, anybody who's over eighty is good, right? You get to eighty five, you're very good. You get to ninety, you're freakish. You're freakishly good at that point. So Donovan's in a really good neighborhood from percentage. He's got to get that number up. I think he can do it. I think it makes him a better player. He's a guy who hasn't cracked the top 10 in scoring yet. He's at 14th at about 24 points a game, 24.2. You know, I think there's some upside there. And I think the other thing is, and David Locke has brought this up, and we'll talk with him about it on Friday, is that uh, he can be a better three-point shooter. He's really good as a catch-and-shoot guy. And so I think the key is get him more catch-and-shoots. You know, 
who can initiate the offense? Can you give some more possessions to Joe and some more possessions to um, uh, well, you can't give them to Bogdanovich now, can you? But obviously to Mike Conley. And so if Conley and Ingles uh, initiate some more, will there be some more catch and shoots for Donovan? Which also gives him a chance to rest off the ball. You know, part of the scoring is you want to play him more minutes and they don't want to wear him out, but not all minutes are created equal. When you're on the ball, you're spending more energy, you're probably getting bumped hit, grab more, it's going gonna, it's gonna to wear you down. A chance to play off the ball, it's also a chance to rest a little bit and a chance to do something you do very well, which is hit, catch, and shoot threes. Uh, and the other thing is, let him initiate the offense, but run the offense and run it to cycle the ball back to him. Right? You switch sides of the floor, multiple guys get touches, but you know you're running it to get a shot for Donovan Mitchell in one of his sweet spots and get it, get it back to him for a catch and shoot. So I think there's some things where he can score. Now he's at 24.2 points a game. Can he get to 25? I think he can. Can he get to 30? I don't want to say that now because there aren't that many guys who get to 30. This season, there are two guys at 30. Bradley Beal at Washington, who's doing it on a bad team, and... That brings some other dynamics into play as far as volume shooter and all that. And I don't think that, uh, you know, with the success the Jazz have, they want to do that. Uh, Beal takes about three shots per game more than Mitchell. And he also goes to the free throw line more um, a couple more times. So there's probably a couple more shots he's using there. So five extra shots a game, essentially. Uh Three of them he takes, two of them he gets fouled on and goes to the free throw line. You know, how much more usage do you want? Does that make you a better team? You know, so I wouldn't get greedy looking for the 30. It wouldn't shock me if Donovan Mitchell one year did it. If the team were constructed a certain way, that might be what's best for the team. Obviously, uh, Harden gets a lot of possessions. And the more Donovan goes to the free throw line, the more that scoring is going to jet up there. Um, Now, I'm focusing mostly on scoring here, which is the easiest thing to focus on. But the way the game is going... Shooting is being weighted as a much more important skill. You know, if you are unstoppable and you can make a high percentage of threes, can the other team make a high percentage of threes? Because there's no other way to beat you. A high percentage of threes is going to beat a high percentage of twos. So maybe a lot of free throws. That'd be the one way to get past you. So I really think those are two things where Donovan has room to improve. And I also think that's what most teams are trying to improve. How do we get more free throws? How do we get more good looks from the three-point line. And most players are much better uh, catch-and-shoot than they are off the dribble. Shooting the three off the bounce can be done. It's hard to do. The step back looks cool. It is hard to do. Um, you know, you can watch high school and college games and see guys who can hit catch-and-shoot threes. Um, it is hard to shoot off the dribble at a high percentage. Uh, but Donovan's got the catch-and-shoot thing going, and I think we might see the team evolve towards that a little bit. So can he score more? Yes. I think the best way, though, to judge can Donovan Mitchell get, best, get better is the place to have the most confidence in him improving, and that is be a better player in the playoffs. Now, the Jazz have been in the playoffs three straight years. Donovan's been with the team twice. This will be the third time. This will be kind of funky because it'll be playoffs, but it won't exactly be playoffs with the, the travel and the road games and all of that. So it'll be a different beast. But I think we see the deeper players get into their career, the better they are as playoff performers. And most guys, 27, 28, 29, they really get it going. Uh, Shaq and Jordan... Um, LeBron, 
you know, that is that is a sweet spot for their best playoff performances. And then the question is, as you get into your 30s, how long can you keep that championship window open? How, how long can you play at that level? And Donovan Mitchell's a long way away from worrying about that. So I think there's a ton of upside here. He's only been in three playoff series. Um, two of them against the Rockets. One thing is you play more playoff series, you see more teams, more styles, you get used to how to handle them. So I think there'll be a learning curve for him over the next, uh, well, I mean, every year. But I think every year for the next certainly three to five years before he hits his peak. I mean, you can hope he hits his peak earlier. Um, I think NBA history suggests it'll be later. There's a lot to learn. But I think part of that is how deep do they go? You know, if you win a first-round series, you get to play another opponent, you get to play another style, you get to deal with another set of matchups and how a team with a different skill set decides to guard you. And the thing about all the really good basketball players, I don't, I don't think there's a long list of really good basketball players who are low IQ guys. I think if you're going to be the elite of the elite, you're a high IQ basketball player. And we can say when analyzing, this guy's a high IQ basketball player. You know, so are all the other elite guys. Um, if you're missing that part of the game, you're probably not one of the elite. So these elite guys, as you give them more opportunities, man, they just they just drink it all in. And the more series they get to play against, the more opponents get played and defended differently, the more upside they have. So I think there's that to look forward to. I also think it'll help him. Um, I think there's more to learn when you're on a team that has more options. You know, the Jazz have more shooters. They have more options. So there's more different ways to attack whatever way you're, you're, uh, you're defended. And you got to learn all those different ways. A year ago, there weren't that many ways to attack. You know, <laughs> it was like you, you had guys who couldn't make open shots. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of info to learn. You, you were overmatched. And when you overmatched, it's hard to learn. It's when it's a much more even matchup and every little thing matters. I think that puts pressure on you to learn how to handle every little thing. So we'll see how this works out. Uh, you won't have the crowds and all that, but you'll still have the excellent competition. You'll still have the X's and O's. You'll still have to figure out how to beat Harden or beat Kawhi Leonard, beat the Clippers, the Rockets, whoever they end up getting matched up with. It's, it's hard to know right now. There's very little separating uh, three, four, five, and six. So who knows what the matchups are going to look like. All right, DJ and PK, more to come. Stay with us. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. We're joined now by Thomas Wolf, author of The Cold Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. Thomas, good morning. Good morning. Glad to be on the show. How are you doing? We're doing, we're doing well. I'm curious right away, you know, there's a lot of things to write about, a lot of people you could probably have access to. Why does this story captivate you? Why do you think this story and will captivate people now Coming up on, what, uh, 88 years later? Yeah, well, 1932 was a great season for baseball. And I think that's the most remarkable thing um, about, about the year in terms of what I tried to write about in the book. But in addition to the fact that there was great baseball played that, that year, it was also a year 
that was a very uh, traumatic and pivotal year in American history. Uh, we were in the midst of the Great Depression. Prohibition was ending. There was a presidential election uh, coming up that, that year. There were demonstrations in the streets of our nation's capital by World War I vets. So there was a lot of social unrest, a lot of uncertainty about the future. Um, and baseball turned out, especially since it was such a splendid season, baseball turned out to be a diversion from a lot of America's troubles that, that particular year. And really, in all of baseball history, I don't think you can find many years that were more exciting in terms of the players who were involved or the pennant races. So it was a great year for baseball, an important year for America. So can you draw parallels from then to now? Sure. I mean, it's, it's eerie almost, um, the, the connections between 1932 and 2020 in terms of what's going on in the country. Um, both years, there's a Republican president in the White House, um, a difficult international and economic situations for the president to deal with, and there's a presidential election um, you know, gearing up. Uh, the, the big difference between 1932 and 2020 is we don't have any baseball this year. Um, it would be nice to have some baseball to take our minds off other things that are going on, including COVID, of course. You know, it's interesting you say all this about, uh, you know, what the um, economic and social background was in 1932. Uh I remember being a kid and being in high school in 1980 and, you know, there was a lot, there was turmoil then, you know, obviously Carter would lose the election to Reagan. A lot of people were upset and voting the incumbent out and the hostage crisis had gone on. And and so it was a, it was all a big deal. And the U S Olympic hockey team, upsets the Soviet Union and wins the gold medal. And I can show the movie to my kids now, and they've seen it, and they, and they like it, and it's a cool story. But you can't really convey the impact that it had based on the time and the feeling then. How much of that is the story, and how much is that setting us up right now for some crazy story that we can't imagine, but something could happen in the next few months that really captures the nation's imagination? I know what you mean about that 1980 um, hockey game uh, between the, the U.S. And, and Russia. I mean, it gives me goosebumps just as you're t- talking about it. It gives me goosebumps just to think back to that. I saw that game live on, on TV 40 years ago, um, and it still resonates with me. Um, I don't know what we're going to – what is in store for us sports-wise over the next 6 to 12 months. Everything is going to be really, I think, dependent – and influenced by how safely pro sports can come back. Um, I've got one son who works in the NFL and one son who coaches um, Division One college basketball, and they're not sure what's going to happen with their seasons. Um, we've got a little bit of golf being played now. I think the U.S. Tennis uh, Open is going to be played in New York, but without fans. Um, the notion of all these teams and games and seasons being played in empty stadiums, is just beyond weird. <laughs> um, but at least, I think, with baseball, at least we're going to get some kind of season and some diversion from what's going on uh, elsewhere in the country. So the cold shot is the title. Did Babe Ruth call the shot and then deliver the home run? I think this pivots on one's interpretation of what it means to call your shot. 
if you're being completely technical and saying, did he point to the spot where he hit his home run? Probably not. I don't think the evidence really supports that, and Ruth kind of um, dismissed that also in later, in later years. But the drama of the moment, the fact that it was a tie game in Chicago, in Wrigley Field, in front of Commissioner Landis, in front of Ruth's wife, um, Yankee fans uh, mixed in with some Cub fans, and especially with Franklin Roosevelt in the audience, made this a very, very special moment. And I believe, as one looks at that at bat, there were five pitches, the first four Ruth took two balls and two strikes. He didn't swing at any of them. And he was constantly being taunted and jeered at by the Cub players. Cub fans in the stands were throwing lemons at him. It was a moment in which most people, even professional athletes, would be distracted. But Ruth was totally focused on that moment. And he had turned to the home plate umpire before the fifth pitch and said, if Ruth puts one over, I'm going to hit it out of here. And that's what he did. On the fifth pitch, Ruth hit the longest home run that had ever been hit at Wrigley Field. So if calling your shot means predicting I'm going to hit a home run and hitting it, then the story is true. If it's a question of whether or not he pointed to the exact spot where the ball was going to land, that's probably not true. Yeah, I don't need the exact spot it landed. As long as he said he was hitting it out and he hit it out, that's good enough for me. You know, yeah. the, the interesting thing about this, because we were just we were just talking about this, uh, discussing instant replay and the baseball managers who used to come out of the dugout and put on a show arguing. Right. You can see Lou Pinella doing it. You can see Billy Martin doing it. Earl Weaver and Tommy Lasorda had some memorable trips out of the dugout when they were upset. And so you had these moments. Now we've got everything we've got. We've got everything on TV. We got replay. We got super slow-mo replay. It's cool on the one level, but on the other level, it eliminates the mystery and the debate. Now, obviously, there's a lot of mystery about Babe Ruth, whether he called the shot. I've been hearing about this since I was a kid. It was way before my time. Do you like the mystery, or do you like definitively seeing and knowing everything and getting calls right? I like the mystery, and I think the myth of, of that particular moment and that particular bat and other myths in and legends in, in sports are, are what draw us to the games. Um, I think we're all, we're all attracted by stories and narratives and highlights in those stories and narratives. And I think, as, as you point out quite accurately, I think, there is something about instant replay and having, you know, a dozen cameras trained on every, um, every event on, in, a sporting, um, in a sporting event that takes away the spontaneity and the mystery and some of the enthusiasm I think that fans have for, for, seeing, for seeing those events. Um, I'm a, you know, they're talking about possibly having balls and strikes called by computers or robots or something, and I kind of like the human element. And I think in baseball especially, the fact that humans are flawed, umpires are going to make mistakes, is something that contributes to the game. It contributes to the drama. One of the things I thought as I, as I read your uh, release on the book was you're talking, you just mentioned that uh, Babe Ruth was jeered. Uh, you know, we view that as sort of a, mon- a modern, I don't know what you would uh, call it, issue with fan interaction with players and the booing and whatnot. What was going on back then? Because I always viewed Babe Ruth as this historic, beloved figure by everyone. Well, 
Yeah, I think he was loved by everyone, and I think he was loved and respected even by the teams and players that he competed against. Um, but he drew attention to himself, um, and he was a trash talker. I mean, you know, he was able to back it up. Um, you think about current or recent uh, athletes, you know, Michael Jordan comes to mind, Kobe Bryant comes to mind as players who who could talk a good game and, and deliver, and I think Ruth was one of those. In the 32 series, there was a specific incident that um, kind of generated a lot of the trash talking, and that was that the Cubs had voted only a half a share to their player, Mark Koenig, who joined the team in August. And Koenig was instrumental in the Cubs um, winning the National League pennant. Um, he had been in the minors. He was brought up. He delivered. He hit almost 400 in August and September. Koenig used to be a member of the Yankees. He played with Ruth and was with the Yankees in the 27th season up through the 1930 season. And because Koenig had only been given a half share of the uh, World Series pot by his Cub teammates, Ruth used that as a way of um, kind of calling out the Cubs players. So that the jeering and the taunting and the trash-talking back and forth had a specific point related to, to Koenig and um, and. Uh, Ruth kind of defending his ex-teammate. But it added to the drama, and I think that's the the key point. So who was Babe Ruth in a modern era? I mean, is there a little bit of uh, the Tiger Woods era of just complete and total dominance because he hit so many home runs uh, more than everybody else he played with. And he, and he played against other legends and with other legends, but he was just way beyond that. Is there a little bit of Tiger there? Is it Jordan and the trash talking? Is it I don't know, maybe Charles Barkley, you know, elite athletes who are not in elite physical condition? Uh, <laughs> what, what combination of current people would reflect Babe Ruth? Well, that, that's a very interesting question. Uh, Jordan, certainly, and at the height of his powers, um, Tiger Woods, during his incredible um, run, you know, were, were athletes who were superb and separated themselves from, from their peers by their dominance. Um, I would suggest that Reggie Jackson had a little bit of Babe Ruth in him in terms of his swagger and his ability um, to, to deliver. Uh, you know, it's, and I, I think if you look at certain tennis players, I mean, Serena Williams perhaps um, kind of fits that also, a, a player who dominates in his or her sport and is recognized by his or her peers as the top of, uh, the top of that sport. Um, I don't know, Ruth had such a cultural charisma also that I'm not sure anyone since Ruth, with the possible exception of Muhammad Ali, um, has kind of captured the um, appeal and, a, and love of a, such a broad-based uh, group of fans and sports and enthusiasts. Well, Thomas, good luck with the book. Thomas Wolf. Thank you very much. Yeah, author of The Cold Shot, Babe Ruth, the Chicago Cubs, and the unforgettable Major League Baseball season of 1932. Thanks for spending a few minutes with us, Thomas. Thanks very much for having me on. I enjoyed talking to you. Thomas Wolf, author, author, talking baseball, talking society, talking uh, 1932 and the parallels to 2020. You know, a year of turmoil, a year of strife. 
when there's a lot of stress in your life, sometimes it's good just to get away and does something magical happen. I, I can tell you, 1980 was a stressful time. I can still remember my grandmother who never talked politics, going nuts about how the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan. In a couple of years, they'd be in Iraq. Then they'd be in warm weather ports. And then, I mean, she was preparing for, uh, you know, World War Three. And that's a woman who lived through World War II and had a little stress over it and had to move the family and relocate because of it. And uh, we didn't get into all of that. But uh, that was it wasn't just her story. It was a story for a lot of people of her generation. And a lot of us absorbed that stress. And so when the U.S. was having a tough time internationally, uh, beat the Soviets in hockey. Oh, it's crazy. It was magic. I, I'd be interested in talking to sports historians and someone who's older and had better perspective than me. Um, but I think that's the first time I really remember the USA chant. Uh, the, the game was in Lake Placid, so it's on American soil with mostly American fans there. And the whole USA chant, now you hear it all the time. And, and you hear it in multiple sports. Um, and it's kind of commonplace. I don't think much of it. If you hear it at a Ryder Cup, you're not surprised. Um, if you hear it at <clears throat> Olympics, at, at hockey or gymnastics or basketball, you're not surprised. If you hear it in an international soccer match, you're not surprised. But I don't really remember it before that. Maybe it was. Maybe it was popularized somewhere else and, and before that. But it seems like it really caught on. And so, uh, you know, the psyche of the, the country needs something now. Is some athlete, some team, or some individual going to step up and provide some magical, mind-blowing moment? We all remember where we were. And trust me, everybody who was alive for those 1980 Olympics remembers where they were. I suppose in 1932, everybody knew, knew where they were when Babe Ruth was doing that, and that tied the country together. Now, you couldn't watch it, but you could listen to it on the radio, and the World Series was a huge deal. Uh, I mean, it still is, but in those days, you know, the, there was no Super Bowl. The NFL was just getting going. Basketball didn't exist. I mean, baseball was, was really it. Boxing, horse racing, a little golf maybe. Uh, but, man, the hold the country had on baseball. It must have been something back then. I wonder if all those fo- folks knew right where they were when something happened. It'll be interesting. We'll have a lot of stuff happening at the same time if everything over these next six months goes as all the commissioners and owners and leagues hope they go. And if they do, we're going to have stuff overlapping. It'll be interesting to see if something really special happens and if it breaks out above the noise of all the games that are going to be going on at the same time. Right? We're going to have... I mean, we're going to have major championship golf in the fall, and we're going to have the NBA going into October playing the finals. I mean, it's going to be a crazy sports calendar. There's going to be a lot going on, assuming everything goes as scheduled, which is what I'm assuming right now. I'm not wavering from that. I'm going to stick with that right now, that everything will go uh, as we expect. You know, it's funny. A lot of things don't last in sports. PK and I were talking yesterday about... um, about uh, quarterbacks and, uh, you know, Terry Bradshaw doesn't get his due. And why is that? And, you know, one factor is oh, it's the 1970s. I mean, how many sports fans who are alive today remember that? I mean, you've really got to be, but you got to be in your 50s, probably in your 50s to remember it. And probably in your 60s or 70s to really appreciate and compare, you know, Bradshaw to Uninus and to Star. I mean, for me, I remember Bradshaw, um, but it was when I was really young. I think I was still in elementary school when he won his first Super Bowl. If not, I was in junior high. And uh, no, I must have been in elementary school. And he, um, 
you know, is the game was so different then. There was this is a gazillion rule changes ago, and uh, you know, you're handing off and you're playing defense, and he's like nine of fourteen in one Super Bowl and nine of nineteen in another. He threw nine of fourteen for ninety six yards in their first Super Bowl win. I mean, who throws for ninety six yards in the NFL? That's a quarter for Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers these days. Um, so Bradshaw doesn't get his due for some of those reasons, but I think there's some is just age. It's a time factor. I think I think you got to look at people like Jack Nicholas and then look back, you know, a couple generations before to name like Babe Ruth and think, what did those guys have to accomplish for that name to still resonate and be magical now? For someone to be writing a book now, I mean, you're almost ninety years down the road from that. Ninety years. I mean, Tiger Woods, uh, you know, 2000 was his year, right? 90 years later. Do you think people are going to be writing books about Tiger in 2090? 2090? Writing books about Tiger? 90 years from now, are people going to be writing books about Tom Brady? Six Super Bowls, will that still be the record? Will somebody uh, surpass it? I mean, he won six Super Bowls. Like, he won as many as Montana and Elway combined. And for a long time, when you argued who was the greatest quarterback ever— well, some people picked Montana and everybody else picked Elway. I mean, those were the guys. And to think that Brady equaled them, is anyone going to come along and pass that? Or is like in 90 years, is somebody going to write a story about Brady? I mean, that's, let's see, uh, 20, uh, 2020, right? He's still a story switching teams. 2018 would have been his last championship season in 90 years. In the year 2,108, a year I never contemplate, okay? I spend no time contemplating that year. People still be writing books about him? That might be the best measure of how awesome Babe Ruth is. That a name from the 1920s and 1930s still resonates as uh, greatness, you know, celebrity, awesome power, game-changing guy. I think game-changers are the athletes that... uh, I give when you start ranking athletes, I bump guys up because they change the way the game is played. If you transcend and transform the sport, Steph Curry is doing that with a three-point shot. I wonder if somebody will write a book about him in 90 years. Huh. Um, I think Steve Nash did a little bit. I think Nash really, um, you talk about the move from the pure point guard um, back to the guy who was a shooter and a scorer. Nash, Nash could shoot it and score it, but he was also so dynamic with the ball. And, you know, the ability to, to drive, you used to be, you drove, you got to the hoop, and you either kicked it out or you take the shot. And to do that dribble he did, that kind of search dribble and circle around back into the paint and give a guy a chance to make another late run, a late cut, and get open. And Stoudemire got a lot of easy points off that. Steve Nash made a lot of people a lot of money. He made Stoudemire a lot of money. He made Sean Marin a lot of money. He was amazing. But, man, who transformed a sport more than Babe Ruth change of baseball? I think that's why his name resonates now. All right, DJ and PK is 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Coming up, uh, columnist for the Washington Post is going to join us. Not your sports should return. You know, we got the plan, and people are committed to the plans that have been out there four or six weeks. But the test numbers, a lot of people are getting it, especially in the warm weather states that early on didn't get hit very hard, but are really having big numbers now, Texas, Arizona, Florida. He'll join us next and explain. Stay with us. Take the Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. 
from Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. We're joined now by Barry Sverluga from the Washington Post, columnist for the Post. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Barry, good morning. Thanks for having me, guys. So you wrote a column that caught our eye, uh, you know, the countdown to sports returning and people want any any whiff of normalcy they can get. These have been anything but normal times in 2020. So sure, it'll be weird watching the NBA play with no fans in Orlando and no home court advantage in the playoffs, but it's a whiff of normalcy. But in your column, uh, you kind of look at it the other way and you're ready to pump the brakes on all of this. I think if you look at what's happening in the country, cases are back on the rise. They're certainly spiking in certain states. Um, as we've relaxed restrictions and opened things back up. And then you put that filter on sports and kind of say, well, okay, what happened? The Phillies had five positive tests last week, or five players test positive, um, as well as some support staff. Uh, The Tampa Bay Lightning had three players test positive. Um, We know that in the NFL, a host of players, including Ezekiel Elliott, uh, have tested positive. Um, and this comes before um, actual practices and full team activities uh, have happened. So uh, maybe 10 days ago, I was like, well, this is going to be fun. I think, you know, you read the, uh, the rules and regulations that all these leagues are putting in place. Um, the PGA Tour is essentially trying to have a bubble that moves from site to site. Um, and I think I was optimistic. And then the reality sets in that, you know, we haven't even begun um, full-on practices to prepare for competitions, and you're already getting these positive tests. Um, why, what are we doing, and in, in, in how is this actually going to happen? It just seems um, a, a little bit, uh, you know, I mean, borderline irresponsible. Do you see a difference in your mind between positive tests and death well, I mean, one leads the other, right? Um, yes, I understand. And a lot of people have pushed back that, um, look, athletes are, you know, in their 20s and in shape, and, the, you know, the virus in most cases will not uh, impact them greatly. In fact, they may be asymptomatic or just have a flu or, or whatever, and that's, that could be absolutely true. Um, the reality is that in to stage these uh, games and, and, you know, even in the NBA um, bubble down in Orlando, it's not like the athletes are there just by themselves. Uh, coaches and support staff are, are generally older. They're going to be having um, direct contact uh, with the athletes. Um, I would also say that, you know, as as we gear up for this and as the, the teams gather, um, we should be prepared for an onslaught of uh, positive tests because, you know, people have been... Um, you know, at their homes and, and living their lives however they see fit for the past three months, um, they're going to be entering the bubble from a position outside the bubble. There's just no way there won't be 
positive tests. So even if you then quarantine those people and and try to clean up the bubble and make it as safe as possible, you're talking about thousands of athletes and personnel that you're asking all to follow the same rules. I just have a little bit of skepticism that when you're talking about a group of thousands um, that you're not going to find some folks who are like, I don't, I don't believe in this. I'm, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go to a restaurant. I'm going to put myself in a position where I might um, be more vulnerable, and then that person is going to enter what's supposed to be a bubble, and, and now you've got some cases on your hands there. So maybe I'm too much of a fatalist when I say this and too cynical, but it's gotten to the point there's so many cases out there uh, that you're not safe if you stay in your home city. I mean, look at how many athletes are testing positive without us asking them or demanding or expecting that they play games that Texas players go into a party and so now 14 of them test positive LSU players go into a bar so now 30 of them test positive uh, the Orlando Pride women's soccer team four staff or six players go to a bar restaurant or whatever get something to eat or drink or whatever and now 10 of them test positive we're going to be swamped by positive tests whether people play games or not so go ahead and play the games I mean it's fatalist I get that but is it going to change anything I mean I think we're on different sides here. I mean, I, I think some of the stuff you're talking about, like where are these people getting it? They're getting it at bars and restaurants. Well, what, why why are they open? Why should they, you know, we were at a point where um, we were locking down. Cases nationally were falling. Um, most places were that were following restrictions. I mean, look at New York. The, the biggest outbreak yeah. um, in the most populous place. Uh, I mean, it was a... a you know, a death zone there for a while. And if you look at their curve, it is nice and flat because people there took it upon themselves to follow the restrictions in a, in a place where, you know, you can't go on the street without running into somebody. Um, so I just, I feel like, you know, take a sports away. And I, I'm a sports writer, so I, I try not to, you know, get too out of my lane here, but um we were asked to be disciplined about something and to do something for the greater good, and we basically decided we're not going to do that. Um, I would rather sports be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, and I think they're headed to be part of the problem. So in the immediacy, we know about baseball and basketball. What are your thoughts as far as on this subject carrying over into college and NFL football? So I think college football is set up to be the biggest disaster possible um, for a couple of reasons. The teams are huge, you know, um, more than 100 usually when you take 85 scholarships and then all the, all the walk-ons at the, at the prominent programs. There's no singular voice, singular rule maker to oversee um, all of college football that can put in, you know, at least the professional leagues can say, um, work with their unions and say, here's the set of protocols and, and we've been advised by the same um, medical experts, and um, I might have skepticism about how it will work, but at least they're, they're able to work together. The Power Five conferences um, might come up with different sets of rules. There might be different sets of rules within those conferences as far as how schools are handling things. And, you know, I keep coming to take a game on week one, September 5th. Um, Alabama is supposed to play USC uh, at um, – 
the Cowboy Stadium in, in Arlington, Texas. Well, think of all the factors there. You've got um, teams, traveling teams that are probably 80 players, uh, massive support staff, including coaches, but also athletic trainers, medical personnel, equipment people, um, media people. They're coming from you know places in California and in Alabama where numbers are on the rise, uh, going to a place in Texas where numbers are on the rise. How is how is that a safe endeavor? Um, it just seems like there are so many vectors where um, you, you've got these college kids on campus. How are they behaving? Can you really ensure a bubble there? And then introducing them to other college kids from the other side of the country to bl- play a game where contact is not only encouraged, it's required. Um, you know, you're going to be breathing all over each other. I feel like college football is the one that stands out to me to be the, the most dubious pursuit. Barry Sorluga joining us from the Washington Post, sports columnist there. You know, Barry, the way it works, especially when you're a place like the Post, you know, you have a chance to have conversations behind the scenes with a lot of beat writers. You've been doing it for a while, so you got your sources you're calling and texting with. How much of this behind the scenes do people take seriously? Because if you could gauge that, you might gauge when there's a tipping point where they might call it off, where they, where, you know, the powers that be, you know, powerful owners and commissioners, everything you're saying, if they're, if they're thinking it a little bit behind the scenes, it might make it more likely they make the call and stop everything, whether that's in a week or a month or whatever. What's your sense of that? Yeah. yeah so I think, you know, I, I understand why the owners and, and players and everybody involved is, is trying to put together a se- seasons in whatever sport we're talking about. It makes sense. There's a lot of money at stake. These guys' livelihoods, um, the, they want to be paid, but they also want to compete. And so you can't just, you know, go forth without a plan. And so I... I in a lot of cases, respect and admire the thoughtfulness that has gone into these plans. They're very, very thorough. If you look at, um, I was just going through the, the baseball back to play uh, plan that um, was, you know, finalized last night. Uh, there, there's a lot of science put into this, and a lot of um, uh, thought put into protecting everybody uh, involved. But in baseball, and talking to People there, for instance, um, you know, the medical people have told Major League Baseball officials that every game, even in a ballpark with no fans, is called a, quote, risk event. And and what does that tell you? Um, It tells you that when you're gathering uh, the couple hundred people that are needed to to stage a game, and that includes, you know, security personnel, um, ballpark uh, personnel, you know, there's got to be operations people, even if there um, are no fans, um, as well as the, you know, medical training, uh, coaching staff, all that stuff. Um, if you bring those people together, that is increasing the risk that the virus could spread. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to be realistic about how this will play out, but I understand why they're, they're planning, because they can't just show up on you know, July 15th and be like, oh, it's safe to play. Like, let's, uh, let's have a, a season. Um, but I do think in all of this, everybody has to remain flexible and not just forge through with eyes shut. Um, I think we have to have our eyes open to 
um, you know, what Dr. Fauci is saying, uh, other medical experts about what's going to happen with the virus in the fall. Um, you know, but that's not just pulling names out of a hat. That's based on um, the behavior of the virus, what happens in in different weather, um, what will happen when normal flu season hits and how that might be intertwined with coronavirus. Um, you know, it just, it, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but I think if you listen to the science, it just seems less likely that, that things are going to be safe to, to pull off sports. As far as baseball goes, do you think we can take anything from the Korean League being played? I mean, it's a good, you know, it's a, a good model, but I would also say that it's a model that was pulled off in a country that took the virus seriously and continued to take it seriously and didn't open up. And when there was a flashpoint, closed back down. Um, we don't seem to be doing that. We seem to be saying, this hasn't killed my grandmother, uh, so I'm going to go get a beer in a crowded bar. Um, and I, I don't mean to be flippant about it, but I think it's frustrating that, uh, you know, we're, we're watching these cases increase after we had worked hard to decrease them. And, um, you know, 100 and, almost 120,000 Americans have died, and somehow um, it, some people think it's a, a hoax. So but that, that, I find that frustrating. Barry, while we've been talking to you, uh, breaking news, the New York Times has uh, tweeted out that the New York City Marathon, the world's largest, has been canceled this year amid concerns about the spread of the coronavirus. So there's one event by the books. Seems logical to me, yep. Well, Barry, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, guys. There's Barry Serluga, and i got to be honest with you. You know, I hear his points, and I think some of them are valid. I don't think he quite got my question in the middle of that interview. I, um, when I was trying to say, take that fatalistic viewpoint thing, it's like, if you stay home, are you going to have fewer cases? Then if you go, are players safer at home? And it might depend on, you know, where home is. I think that's one thing with the United States, as we've talked about this, you know, the coronavirus is a national problem. It just hasn't been playing the same everywhere at the same time. When it was really awful in New York, and I saw interviews with doctors and nurses, and uh, you know, PK and I have talked about, you know, where do you get your news and who do you trust now and all that. But when I when I see the ordinary people interviewed, and I see the doctors and nurses, and I see the look in their eyes and hear the tone in their voice, I believe them. You know, it was terrible, but it wasn't terrible to that level in the whole country then. And now we're seeing hot spots in in Florida and in Arizona. Right, Utah's numbers are climbing. Um, but we're seeing a place like New York, it's, it's not as bad now. They've been doing much better. Um, so if a player chooses not to go, you know, a player from one state, you can see where, well, maybe they're picking a safer environment. But a player from another state, maybe it's kind of a push. I think that was a, what I was trying to get at. And also the thing is that now we're seeing these teams, just as they get ready to get back together, whether it's Texas football, LSU football, uh, the Orlando professional women's soccer team, they go to a party at Texas, they go to a club, at LSU, apparently they went out uh, for dinner and drinks or something in Orlando, and and they get it. Well, it's not because of the sport. It's because of what they do when they're not practicing or training, lifting weights, you know, whatever it is, watching film. It's not the actual act of playing the sport that's the problem. It's they're back together and they're socializing. So... <laughs> 
can, can you control that? And can, can you control it if you don't play or if you do play? So, I don't know. I guess if there were easy answers, we wouldn't have all these debates and everybody going around and around. And uh, I, I, honestly, when I tell you a lot of stuff about what I think is going to happen in sports, a lot of it's informed by what I have seen happen. Free agency, um, trades, drafts. Um, Issues with, you know, teams slumping or uh, teams peaking. And a lot of it's informed by what we've seen and the trends because a lot of time it repeats itself. I've never lived through a pandemic before. I don't know what to tell you. I hope I don't live through again and then have to use this as the experience for that. I guess at least I'll have it. Um, but, uh, I mean, there, there's so many new issues here. And, and sometimes I wonder if we aren't so far down the road that when we choose between two options, sometimes I think we're choosing between a bad option and a bad option. And there's no good choice. You know, and, and one group says, well, this is what's wrong with this option. Another group says, well, this is what's wrong with this option. Like, yeah, you're both right. But we, uh, if there was ever a time that there were good options, it's in the rearview mirror. Um, that's a little too cynical, too. But hey, what I think and why pull punches with you now, right? All right, DJ and PK, we got to take a break. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us.